The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Adam Smith is the Vice President of Corporate Development for Roco Resource Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO.V. Oroco is a Canadian-based exploration company with gold, silver, and zinc assets in Sonora State, Mexico, a very prolific area for several peer mining concerns. Oroco expects to begin producing high-grade gold as well as silver at their Cerro Prieto project in 2013. Adam, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again, Alice. You've had some interesting news come out recently. You're clear to begin drilling out the property even further. Oroco announced the receipt of the full suite of permits from the Mexican government that are required to build and operate our open pit gold and silver mine in northern Sonora. That's a big milestone for a company like Oroco. We now have permits in place. We have acquired the surface rights on the property. We, of course, own the mineral rights. We have an economic assessment in place that shows what the capex for the project is going to be, what the working capital is, and how much profit the mine will spend. We have a construction contractor in place, and we have all the necessary rights of way to build the new road to the property, which connects us to the nearby highway, which is only six kilometers away. We've also announced uh, last year that we have an indicative term sheet for the required capital to build the mine in place with a financier in New York, and we're presently working our way through the requirements to close that financing. And you expect to go into production next year, don't you? This is a very simple mine to build and to put into operation. Uh, It's an open pit, which is as simple as it gets. The ore starts at surface, so there's no time-consuming work to strip away waste before we get to ore. And the processing is by way of heap leach, which is as simple as it gets, again, in the mining business. So we anticipate production in less than a year from the time we start construction. So we could even be in production this year. But if not this year, it's going to be early next year. Are you going to use that revenue early on from producing gold and silver to further stepping out the project, correct? We only have drilled about 10 or 15% of the available geology to us. After we completed that process, we realized we had critical mass in the form of a gold resource big enough to finance to production and to generate significant revenue. So we've got tremendous additional geological resources to discover at that property. We have a drill turning on the property right now for the purpose of expanding the resource, and we would expect in the coming years to both drill on our property to the north and south of the current gold mine and as well on the additional properties to the east, which we've just acquired in the last month. One of the things that is attractive about your company is that you're a $0.28 stock and you don't have 250 million shares out there. We've been very careful, very conscious of dilution. Most of Oroco's management have been with the company since its founding. We are very conscious of diluting the shareholders' interest in the company. Oroco has just 63 million shares outstanding. 
We've advanced the project from its IPO in 2008 to uh, mine construction, which we expect to commence this year, and production either at the end of this year or beginning of next year. And as most of the management of the company have been with uh, Oroco since its founding, we are very conscious of shareholder dilution. We want Oroco shareholders to stay very highly leveraged to the potential revenue of this property. It's not a very volatile stock from what I've noticed. During the last year, the capital markets have seen a great deal of volatility, but Oroco's share price has held steady. You're right. We attribute that to the fact that we work very hard to communicate with our shareholders. We sit down with them very frequently, and we've attracted a very loyal bunch of, for the most part, institutions who understand the timeframes involved and understand the opportunity here. They also recognize in Oroco the potential to both generate cash flow in the near term and expand the resource that that cash flow is based on, and to generate significant additional value to the shareholders through the development of Oroco's second property, which we call the Shoshapala Project. And Shoshapala has some very interesting attributes, which make it, in my opinion, one of the most exciting new exploration plays to come to the market this year. What are your plans for the company over the next 12 months? We will complete the process by which Oroco will finance the construction of the Cerro Prieto mine. We will also continue exploration to expand the resource at that mine. And very importantly, uh, we will commence exploration on our second set of properties, the Xochapala Project, which is located in Guerrero State. It is in what has been dubbed the Guerrero Gold Belt. The Guerrero Gold Belt has seen the discovery of over 20 million ounces of gold in the last decade. Discoveries continue in the Guerrero Gold Belt up to today with New Strike Capital's amazing gold discovery in the last year. Is that region as prolific as Sonora State? It's a much more concentrated area of gold deposits. From the top of the Guerrero Gold Belt which is the Anapala deposit discovered by Newstrike, to the bottom of the Guerrero Gold Belt, which is the Xochapala intrusion owned by Oroco, is just 35 kilometers. Within that 35 kilometers, there are six examples of intrusions, which are geological structures which outcrop on surface. They break the surface, if you will. Each of those intrusions which has been drilled, Anapala, El Limon, Nukai, Los Filos, and Bermahal, has produced a gold resource in excess of 3 million ounces of gold. Together, the region hosts over 20 million ounces of gold, as well as Mexico's largest gold mine, the Los Filos gold mine owned by Goldcorp. The last intrusion in the region, which is the site of the original discovery 80 years ago of gold, is owned by Oroco. That's Xochapala. It's the last of these very exciting geological structures to be drill tested. Oroco plans to focus its exploration activities on Xochapala during 2012. It sounds as if you've done everything you stated you were going to do, and we can look forward to more potentially exciting news in the coming weeks and months. I think Oroco will just reach its stride in 2012. We will demonstrate that uh, we have a mine that is going in production and will quickly generate cash flow. And for those people who believe that the value of gold is steady or going to continue to rise, we are very highly leveraged to the value of gold in terms of the value of the company versus the potential future revenues. And I think we've got the potential in Xochapala for a major new discovery, potentially one of the major discoveries of 2012. One more question, Adam. How does Orico compare to your peers in the Guerrero Gold Belt at this stage? The other junior mining companies who are making discoveries in the Guerrero Gold Belt, and they're the nearest comparables, I think, to Oroco, have market caps ranging from $100 million to $300 million, all the way up to $825 million versus Oroco's current $20 million market cap. So I think the upside potential for Oroco's share price is obvious. Thank you, Adam, again for joining us today on the program. I'm Ellis Martin, and I must disclose at this time that I'm a shareholder of Oroco Resource Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO.V. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. 
I'm Ellis Martin once again reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference and I'm sitting here with one of our sponsor companies, Gold Rush Resources, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GOD.V and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in GDRRF. I'm with Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ellis. Uh, Thanks for having me on the program again. Now, you're focused on gold exploration in Burkina Faso, West Africa. You were there in December, I believe. And let's talk about Burkina Faso. Why is that so fascinating? Uh, Burkina Faso is probably the best place in the world right now to be doing gold exploration. Uh, Many people have heard of the gold exploration being conducted in the Yukon Territory in Canada. The problem there is it's only about a three-month field season. Burkina has an 11-month field season. There have been six new mines opened in the last five years, with another four mines that will probably be opened here in the next two to three years. It's very underexplored. It has great geology and just a wonderful place to work. So by field season of 11 months, you mean there's basically no time with the exception of one month that you're shut down? Well, and that's variable. Uh, In the north of the country, it's probably less than a month. In the south of the country, closer to the equator, uh, they do have a a bit longer rainy season. Last year, we drilled right through the rainy season on some of our projects because the rains really didn't affect us. Some areas do, however, get a little bit more rain, and there you're looking at probably one month to a maximum of two months that uh, you'd be shut down. Now, Burkina Faso is in West Africa, which is a very prolific area for gold mining. Let's educate our new listeners and enlighten them as to why that's true. Burkina Faso was underexplored historically. It was sort of left alone. It was a former French colony, totally landlocked, a very poor country on the United Nations Development Index, and it just didn't see a lot of exploration. But that didn't mean it didn't have a lot of potential. The amount of greenstone belts, which is one measure of the prospectivity of an area, uh, is higher there than it is in Ghana, Mali, or Niger. And certainly those countries have received much more exploration focused by international companies. Now, that has changed now over the last, say, 10 years. And there have been more and more companies coming into Burkina, and they've been having wonderful exploration success. If you look at Western Australia or the Yukon, the exploration costs per ounce of gold are somewhere around $150 an ounce. In Burkina, they're more likely 10 to $15 an ounce. And, and so it, you just get a lot more bang for your buck as an explorer in looking for gold in Burkina because it's much easier to find and there's been fewer eyes looking on the ground for it. So it's a much more prospective place to be than pretty much anywhere else in West Africa. Now, last time we talked, you had alluded to some potential news coming out in a few weeks. Well, those few weeks have come by. This just came out a few days ago. You intersected 8.77 grams per ton of gold over 23 meters and 8.34 grams per ton of gold over 6 meters in fill-in drilling at your flagship Ranjin gold deposit. Yeah, that's right. We're very, very pleased with those results. Early stage, to some extent, we are infill drilling and looking to update our resource estimate sort of end of the first quarter. So this was infill drilling, but it was also deeper and in areas where we had very little coverage previously. And although interpretation isn't uh, precise at this point, it does look like we've uncovered a cross fault with a deeper lens of higher grade gold. I mean, that 8.7 grams is about a quarter ounce gold. Typical grades in Burkina are on the order of one and a half to two grams. So to get 8.7 gram material is very encouraging. And we still have about 58 holes 
to announce from the program that we conducted at Rongin. We also have 13 trenches just completed there and results from those. And on top of that, we have another four permits with drill results pending where we think we've at least on one of them, have really uncovered something quite remarkable. Now, compared to your peers, you may be dramatically undervalued, and this is the type of company that many investors get into, potentially, when they're looking for that three or four or five or ten banger. They want to find a company that's under a dollar, or in your case, under 30 cents, so that they can hang in for the long term and see some real gains, especially when you're compared to some of the peers that exist in that area. I would like to think that Gold Rush would be a very attractive investment at this point. We have an excellent exploration team that has been put in place over the last year or so. They have between them 15 to 17 years each, I guess, experience. Our chief geologist, John Learn, has five discoveries in Burkina Faso to his name. Our VP Corporate Development and our VP Exploration are also very experienced guys with discoveries to their name. We have a crew of 45 geologists and support workers in Burkina with a fully staffed office. So we're in really good shape in terms of exploration potential and the ability to find gold. We have reasonable capitalization at this point. We've got just so many good projects that we're drilling or have just drilled. So there's really a pipeline of exploration potential, not just one project not just a couple of guys. So I'd like to think that that sort of scenario would be attractive to investors because it's more than a one-shot deal. We're going to do well with Rongun. We think that'll become a, a mine at some point. Then as well, we have a pipeline of projects all the way from grassroots to farther advanced. This company is not necessarily new in the business, is it? The original company that is now called Gold Rush was incorporated in 1966. And as is the case in in the resource industry, sometimes they go through some transformations over the years depending on market cycles. Gold Rush itself has been in Burkina Faso for six years and is actually one of the elder statesmen of companies in that country. It was sort of part of the first wave, I guess, of exploration companies into the country that began conducting modern exploration there. And that was about 2006. Yeah, an old company and relatively experienced with regard to Burkina. Subsequent to that, there's been at least two or three waves of exploration companies from Australia and Canada who have come to to Burkina and are picking up the third and fourth level permits. We think we've got some of the best permits in the country at this point. Let's look ahead a year or two. What are your plans for the company? Number one, to advance the Rongwin deposit to the feasibility stage and take it through feasibility with the concept being that we'd like to have a a going concern mining operation, open pit heap leach mining operation at Rongen. And number two, to advance as many of our other targets as possible to in a more advanced state, whether it be pre-feasibility or feasibility. And these things will take two to three years, but the prospectivity of the ground there and the ease in finding gold is such that it's not improbable or impractical for that sort of timeline to be followed. So those are our two main objectives. And I think along the way, as we demonstrate more ounces in the ground and partnerships with larger companies, etc., these will be the sorts of milestones that should lead to an increase in share value. And that's ultimately what our goal is for our shareholders, to give them the best value possible. Well, Len, we certainly do appreciate you being a sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Let's look for some more developments from you in the future. Thank you very much for joining us today in the program. Thanks very much, Ellis, for the opportunity. We look forward to some good news coming out in the next month. I've been speaking with Len Brownlee the president of Gold Rush Resources. Gold Rush trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol G-O-D and in the U.S. on the OTCQX. Just type in G-D-R-R-F or you can find them on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. 
Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with a market cap of nearly $650 million with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper in New South Wales, Australia. Alkane Resources trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ANLKY. That's A-N-L-K-Y. The Alkane story has been a compelling one, reflecting the success of their Dubbo Zirconia project and the international market for zirconium and rare metal resources. Ian, welcome back to the program. Thank you. You issued a release noting that you signed a deed of agreement with New South Wales Development of Trade and Investment Regional Infrastructure and Services to receive financial assistance for infrastructure for the development of your wholly owned subsidiary, the Tom Lee Gold Project. You'll be receiving some financial assistance to develop this project. Uh, yes, it's quite an unusual event, I'm sure, anywhere in the world to get government assistance these days to develop resource projects, but uh, yes, our local state government has come in to help us out with some infrastructure, mainly the the water supply and power supply to the Tommingley Gold Project. It's a good result because it's a win-win for both us and the local community because the water and the power will ultimately be used for the, for the little tiny village of Tommingley to help maintain its standards there. So it's a good result. It's certainly nice to have state participation in encouraging development of commerce, especially the mining industry in New South Wales. Fortunately, the state government does have a strong policy of trying to assist regional development. In other words, get development in the state outside of the sort of main metropolitan areas, and this is a good step forward. I mean, although Dubbo itself is quite a sizable city nearby to us, some of the other smaller towns and little tiny towns like Tamingley need all the help they can get. So in this case, by helping us to build the gold project on the Tamingley doorstep, but also leave a legacy long-term of a decent water supply to the town and a, and a decent electricity supply. It's a good result, and we certainly encourage the state government to keep doing these sorts of projects. When do you expect to produce gold and generate revenue at Tottenham at this stage, it looks like it'll be early 2013. We're still awaiting the final development approval from the state government. That's obviously a different department from the one that's just put its hand in its pocket to help out. So with the planning department, that we're estimating that we'll have approval. And then it's about 12-month constructing time to build the plant and get it up and running. So realistically, late 2012, early 2013. So you expect to be a gold producer in relatively short order? Yes, yeah, sure. It's a modest-sized project, but it does generate substantial returns it'll, it'll generate 30 to 40 million dollars a year certainly past our base case of seven and a half years out to 10 years and it's a project that we can build on and that's always been the strategy look start off relatively modest but we think over time we can extend out its life there are other synergies in the regions obviously things like the the Dubbo Zirconia project there's a long-term synergy there that we can use the gold development of Tommingley also well there's nothing modest about the Dubbo Zirconia project is there no true it's a world-class project and certainly uh, heading in the right direction. Everything we've done in the last uh, two or three years has certainly progressed towards that development. What can you tell us about progress with Dubbo? I guess many things are going on. We did complete the feasibility study back in September. I think we've, you and I have talked about that already. But it certainly showed what a robust project it is, even using very conservative revenue stream. And I think the other thing that you know we like to stress with the project is that two components of it, the zirconium and the heavy rare earth output, really are very strategically important in the whole world sense. I mean, the project will be one of the more significant non-Chinese producers of both of those commodities. Unfortunately, we also have the niobium and the light rare earth output, which help the revenue stream. But it all adds up to making it a very, very good project. And then going forward from here, we've got MOUs. We've got all the zirconium output tied up under MOU now. We're very close to finalising a niobium MOU. And then the rare earths, and certainly the rare earths are a very interesting stage. It's a lot more complicated to 
put in the right sort of deal in place for that, uh, but I hope that sometime early in the new year we'll have that in place as well. So a lot of things going on. Should have the environmental assessment work done, then of course that goes into the state government for the approvals process. So we're still on target to have production in 2014, but it will depend a little bit on the state's attitude as to how quickly they can proceed the, the approvals process. You already have at least three offtake agreements that I'm aware of before you even go into production. Not too many companies can make that claim. That's very true, and certainly uh, that's very important. I mean, in fact, it, I mean, it sounds a bit silly, but uh, we actually, right now, would probably have 120%, 130% of our zirconium output potentially sold, and that's because one of the MOUs is not restricted to any particular tonnage or volume. It's very open-ended at this stage, and with the strong markets into both Europe and North America. So it's a good place to be with the zirconium, and it's always governed the size of the project. I mean, the, the more zirconium we can sell the bigger the project can be but the others have said like the Niobin very close to being finalised and then the rare earths we're working on a slightly different concept with the rare earths rather than just sell the two concentrates as they are we're sort of targeting a joint venture with existing separation facilities whereby we can participate in the upside of that the separation to produce the individual rare earth oxide so there's quite a fair amount of work involved in putting that together to get it to a status where you could say yes we have a, a genuine deal in place. Now, some would say that you have a fairly decent share price near $11 a share, but the reality is the sector has taken quite a hit, and your company has too with all that you have going. You might say that your company stock is tremendously undervalued, and it could be a good place to get in, possibly. I agree. Absolutely correct. The whole sector's been unmercifully belted, is probably the words that I'd use. And some of it's been quite misinformed. I think there's been some reports about, you know, I've seen things like rare earth market collapses, rare earth prices collapse. And realistically, that's a long way from the truth. Certainly, the two big bulk volume rare earths like Lanthanum and Cerium have dropped in price, but they're certainly still way above levels that they were at the beginning of this year. So we haven't seen a collapse. And it's just very frustrating when you see media reports that talk about that and of course what happens is that permeates through the whole industry and we all cop it. But going back to Alkane certainly I guess proportionately we have been hit, probably not quite as hard as some but that markdown does not reflect all the assets inside the company and where we are in terms of our development profile and doesn't reflect the gold, doesn't reflect the very large resource we've got in joint venture with Newmont which you know hopefully will get developed sometime in the next few years. So yeah we've certainly been bolted I suppose is a good word. Again you have a non-commercial pilot plant where you're testing your production capabilities and many other companies have yet to complete their feasibility studies and don't have their infrastructure laid out. I don't see why potential investors shouldn't continue to take a look at Alkane now as an investment possibility. Again, I have to agree with you. Uh, certainly the pilot plant from both the chemical engineering component and the marketing side of it has been extremely important. And then really, um, all projects have to go through this pilot plant at some stage. You can't ultimately get to the point where you can be guaranteed a sign-off on your project on its viability before you've done that, before you get products out to the marketplace. Because all these products are different. Each process produces a slightly different product. And then, of course, the end users have got to be able to add that product to their particular application. So... Uh, obviously, if you can't sell the material, you don't really have a very good project, and uh, it's, it is an important part. And again, it's something that we deliberately set out to do 2005, 2006, and then had the plant running at 2008. It's still running today. We'll operate it through just on product development, improving the quality of our products, changing the mix, working on different ideas, improving recoveries, and all of those sort of things, which, again, the only way you can do that is by a fully operating pilot plant. 
And, of course, you're trading in the U.S., which is a huge asset. Yes, it is. It's been an interesting exercise, and certainly it's something that we'd like to push further and like to develop further. And it's just, again, it's sort of slow penetrating into the North American market. It always is from Australian, from an Australian perspective. I mean, we're on the other side of the world. We're in a very different time zone. But we certainly are making some progress with that listing. Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks very much, Alice. A pleasure as usual. I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, president of Alcane Resource under the symbol A-N-L-K-Y. That's A-N-L-K-Y. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heat leach operation. I'm Ellis Martin, today reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm up here with the president of Silvercrest Mines, that's Scott Drever. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in STVZF. Scott, nice to see you again. Seems like just a few days ago we were in Beverly Hills, and now we're in Vancouver. How are you? I'm really well, Ellis, and thanks for having me again. Now, you've had some developments with respect to La Jolla that you alluded to when we spoke last in December. What's been happening in La Jolla? Well, I think in December when we spoke, we were in the midst of doing a resource calculation for La Jolla, our initial resource. We got that work done, and we did the release, at least the press release, on the summary results of that, which showed that we have 109 million ounces of silver equivalents in an inferred category. That's a game changer, I'd like to say maybe you're not saying it, but it's definitely a game changer. And uh, what's the next step with regard to La Jolla then? Certainly, I think your words are reasonably well chosen. It's it's significant for us, and it has the earmarks of being significant in the mining industry. We, of course, tested only a small portion of the potential area with that result of uh, 109 million ounces of silver equivalent. And uh, we are anxious, of course, to uh, look at the remainder of the potential area. And so we've embarked on a uh, an 80-hole program. We have one drill rig that has been running there since early December, and we have two more drill rigs lined up to go in here shortly. Now, I should review for those that are hearing about your company for the first time that you're a producer in the silver and the gold space with regard to your flagship project, Santa Elena, and that project is financing a lot of your present and future operations, isn't it? Yes, it is. We started the uh, Santa Elena Mina last year. We've reached pretty much steady state. It's an open pit heap leach operation that last year on a, on a partial production year, we produced, I think it was 20, almost 27,000 ounces of gold and about 430,000 ounces of silver. So that is providing us with a nice stable uh, cash flow platform 
that will enable us to uh, do the expansion plan that we have on tap at Santa Elena to uh, double the production over the next three years and allow us to do aggressive uh, exploration work on a project like La Jolla. Now, you really weren't affected at all, at least not drastically. You saw some share price growth. I believe the value of your stock increased by about 35 to 40 percent during October, November, uh, pulled back just a little bit in November. Compared to your peers, that's a tremendous growth. But what do you think is responsible for that? Well, I think it's uh, just a progression of things and us doing what we said we would do. We said we would be in production uh, on time and on budget, and we were. We said our production would be a certain number of ounces, and we're hitting those targets. So those things are online, and that helps, of course, if you have cash flow that you don't have to go back to the equity markets, then, of course, that helps stabilize your price, I think, as well. Now, you had a couple of research analyst reports that have come out within the last year or so that had your share price value at double what it is now within the next 12 to 16 months, but that valuation was done before this latest report. Do you think that'll change? Yeah, the two uh, analysts that have put out reports on us, one is Stuart McDougall out of Jennings in Toronto, and the other is Nick Campbell out of uh, Canaccord Genuity here in Vancouver. As you say, they've both picked target numbers that are about double our $2.25 share price at the moment, and I would encourage your your listeners to uh, check with those particular uh, companies to to look at those reports. They did include some minor values, I think, for the La Jolla. And as we move forward, of course, those will probably change upwards as we go forward. Now, you're fairly tightly held, too. We don't have 250, 300 million shares out there, do we? Our outstanding and issued right now at the moment is about 87.5 million, I think. Fully diluted, we're just under 100 million, which compared to a lot of companies, as you point out, is not a lot. And over the course of the past few months, I haven't seen a lot of hostile activity either related to your stock. Hostile in that you mean uh, selling off of the stock? No, it it looks like some accumulation going on and obviously we're bumping around our all-time highs. So if we can establish that base uh, above $2, uh, then that gives us a real nice platform to move uh, upwards from their pending uh, positive results from uh, Santa Elena and La Jolla. Now one of the analysts I interview is David Morgan and he has silver hitting $60 announced sometime during this year, 2012. Well, of course, that can't be bad news for your company. It's got to be good news if, in fact, that does happen. Yeah, I know David, and I've interviewed with him a couple of times, and his $60 number isn't outside of my belief system. I think probably a base of of $29 for silver is is pretty decent. I don't anticipate it being at 60 and staying there. Uh, I would think probably, you know, overall an average of 40, 45, somewhere there. But to hit 60 wouldn't surprise me a bit. Can I ask you what the cost of production per ounce is for Silvercrest? We're still in a bit of a ramp-up mode here. We're almost to steady state where we can put a hard number on those. But our last year numbers are up until the third quarter of last year. We were seeing something in the order of 750 an ounce of uh, silver equivalent. So we've got very, very good margins at Santa Elena. What are you going to be doing during the next 12 months? We've started on, a, on an expansion program, as I mentioned, uh, at Santa Elena. That entails putting in a conventional mill. We're doing underground development. Uh, we started the decline here last week and that'll be going through 2012. We're doing a pre-feasibility study on a satellite deposit Cruz de Mayo. Of course we're going to be very aggressive on uh, La Jolla to uh, turn around a second resource estimate after we finish this 80-hole program.
Well, Scott, it's always a pleasure to meet with you and speak with you. I've been speaking with the president of Silvercrest Mines, Scott Drever. Again, Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, easily found. Just type in STVZF from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Scott Drever, thanks for joining us today. Find a link to the Silvercrest website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Apogee Silver is a dynamic Toronto-based junior exploration and development company with a strategic focus on advanced-stage silver, zinc, and lead deposits in world-class mineral districts in South America. Apogee's primary focus is the Pulacayo Paca property, located in southwestern Bolivia. Apogee has been advancing the property since 2006 through a joint venture agreement with Golden Minerals Company, formerly Apex Silver. Apogee is also exploring the Cachinal Silver property located in northern Chile. Apogee has a recent share price of 18 cents and is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. I'm Ellis Martin reporting today from the California Investment Conference in beautiful Indian Wells, California, not far from Palm Springs. I'm with Neil Ringdahl, the president, the chairman of Apogee Silver, trading on the venture as... APE.V and in the US as AGEEF. Neil, welcome to the program. Nice to see you here. Thank you very much, Ellis. Let's talk about your new oxide results at the Pulakaya project. Well, we're very excited about it. We've been drilling, we did a drilling program towards the end of last year, about 6,000 meters along with some surface sampling and our first results came out earlier this year and a couple of weeks back we had a press release out on that and what we're seeing is significant intersections at mineable grades which is good from my point of view because I'm a mining engineer just to highlight a couple of them 20 meters at 79 grams per ton there's a 9 meter at 3 ounces per ton there is 30 meters at 3 ounces per ton we're very excited about that and it just opens up the door to us to have a look at open pit option as well as underground which is where we're a little bit further advanced now this particular mine is a past producer from 1883 to 1959 over 600 million ounces came out of this area making it the second largest silver mine in Bolivian history. What do you hope to do during the next couple of years? Well, we want to get it into production. We're on the cusp of that. In fact, as you know, we've started mining uh, a few months back. The idea is to get it up to a thousand ton per day of ore from the underground mine by the end of next year. That will yield very, very significant recoveries because our average grade of the resource is 153 grams per ton, five ounces. And obviously we will be mining at an economic cutoff and the average grade above cutoff we expect to be anything between 200 and 300 grams per ton. Those are very, very large numbers. And what's interesting is we've seen some action in the market recently. I think shareholders, uh, new shareholders, are beginning to respond to the activity that you've been doing down in Bolivia. That's right. We've been focusing on a lot of marketing lately because I didn't think the name was that much out there. And there's a lot of interest in our company because we're a very cheaply priced stock at the moment. When people think of Bolivia, they don't necessarily understand the political economic situation in that country. You were very closely with the state government and the people in that area. That's right, Ellis. We've gained control of the property through a lease agreement by which we pay a 4% royalty. 2.5% goes to the state-owned mining company called Comibor, or Compañera Minera del Bolivia, and 1.5% goes to the mining cooperatives of Pulacaya, who are all informal miners who've been working the, working the uh, deposit over the last few years on an informal basis. And they're very excited about it because being part of the community, it's great that we can actually, and we're also excited about 
about it because the community benefit directly as co-owners of this venture. And to reiterate, this is not an exploration project. This is a mine that's gone into production. Silver is being produced. More silver is going to be produced over a period of time. And the infrastructure has been there for a very long time. That's right. I must just qualify that. We've only just started producing and we're building a stockpile at the moment. But in the near future... We will have secured, completed the agreements with a local mill and we'll be doing some custom toll milling, which has become increasingly attractive given the grades that we're picking up underground. I'm unable to disclose what they are at this stage, apart from that they are attractive. We think that will be very well received by the market. We're beginning to produce revenues and as we grow the mine, growing the, the local workforce, locally trained workforce, they're new to mining and for that reason we're taking it easy in the development of the mine don't want to rush it we don't want to hurt anybody and we want to do it the right way so perhaps when we follow up in a couple of weeks you might have something new to talk about absolutely i believe in three to five years we'll have a mine that's doing you know seven to eight million ounces per year at ten dollars an ounce which is i think uh, something that will be very attractive neil it's always a pleasure to speak with you this time in person thanks for joining me today at the california investment conference thanks very much Alice. great to meet you i've been speaking with neil ringdahl the president and chairman of apogee silver trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, man. Join me now for a candid interview with America's preeminent expert on precious metals, commodities, and foreign currencies, Jim Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair is the president of sponsor Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the Amex division of the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty focuses primarily on gold assets strategically located in the Lake Victoria Greenstone Belt of Tanzania, one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in the world. The company acquired a 55% interest in the Advanced Stage Buck Reef Gold Mine Development Project, which could see commercial production in 2014. Previously to helming Tanzanian royalty, Mr. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Group of Companies, which offered brokerage services in stocks, bonds, etc., operating in New York, Chicago, Kansas City, Toronto, London, and Geneva. He was an advisor to Hunt Oil and the Hunt family from 1981 through 1984 for the liquidation of their silver position as a prerequisite for the $1 billion loan arranged by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. And we're pleased to have him as a weekly guest on the Ellis Martin Report. You sound exuberant. It's really because I just feel good. What I think today's conversation should be about, I think today we should talk about the spin on the employment figures. It's a huge amount of spin coming out from every Un- single angle. Bloody believable. I've never seen anything like it. Bliss has broken out everywhere. I know. It may be contagious. Everybody's so happy on financial TV, they're just going into bliss and giddiness. I think it might be catching. Well, you predicted this exuberance a few weeks ago, and by gosh, it started. We're, we're well into February right now. How are you feeling about this quote-unquote positive economic news that's being pumped into our psyche by the government and the media at this time? I think it has actually reached a level that has to be defined as a spiritual level. I have never seen an attack of bliss come out of economic figures to the degree that the uh, report on employment has developed. What we need to keep our eye on is not necessarily the machinations of our money bunnies reporting from the various TV stations about unemployment, but really the most important factor is what is its effect on the U.S. dollar. Because down deep, understanding the figures and recognizing that one of the finest ways to create a good unemployment figure is to stop looking for a job. The 80 to 82 range on the USDX 
is the key level where fundamental selling has taken place. Fundamental selling based on the advent of QE3. Fundamental selling based on the uh, clear beard that was used when the U.S. Federal Reserve created the $500 billion plus swap line and the IMF created its rescue fund and invited external non-member contributions to be able to make at least the first quarter rollover in the euro debt possible. All of that's going to be filtered right into the dollar and the competition between the management of perspective economics and clearly that's what you see on the airwaves what you see on the headline on on the wall street journal saturday sunday edition clearly all of that will resolve itself into a common denominator which can be defined as the price at which the dollar trades on the usdx index there is a terrific amount of resistance right now at 79.645, at 79.645. And between 80 and 82, I believe there's a fundamental stone wall created by those significant dollar holders, which really see that position to be a position by default that wish to diversify out of the U.S. dollar. Are we talking about the Chinese possibly and some, gov- uh, some entities in the Middle East as being uh, so-called non-member contributors? I think you're speaking about China particularly because uh, in our last conversation we defined the supply of dollars required would come from Fed swaps. And the uh, management of the euro with that 1.3 in front of it, which is almost inexplicable looking at the euro's condition and remembering it traded at a 1.19. You look at the Chinese to be the managers of the euro and you look at the U.S. Fed as the suppliers of the dollars required in order to prevent another liquidity crisis. You've got these banks such as J.P. Morgan in bed with the Chinese entities. What do you think their end game is when they're touting their business over there in China? Well, when there's business to be done, obviously the establishment does the business. I wrote a book, as you may know, and I think it was in 1995 it was published, dealing with the future of China, India, and Africa. And clearly, there is really no stopping China, because regardless of whether the swings China might have from time to time, like all economic cycles, when you begin to incorporate into an economic system, in the smallest percentage of a huge population, you create markets as big as as Euroland itself in one swoop. There's no question in my mind that the leading economy of the world will be China, second U.S., third India. And I think you could probably have a trade between uh, U.S. and India between who will be second and who will be third. It's simply when you enfranchise into an economy, even the small percentage of those huge populations you create markets for consumption the size of Spain, the size of Germany, etc., etc., until you've actually created a new Euroland. So doing business in China is an absolute necessity. Now, China has been for a long time politically isolated, if you will. That political isolation broke down in 85. China became business people. But China, if you've been in there, or especially if you do business with the Chinese, you'll discover quite quickly that China hasn't changed at all. The Chinese are Maoists who want money more than territory. And the analysts who discuss China seems to believe that China's economy will function very much like an economy in the West where free choice has a great deal to do with markets. China has free choice, but as Maoists who want money, believe me, when China's population is told to march, they begin and they march. So it's an entirely different situation. The major wealth families, the biggest banks in the world, 
the largest international corporations all have to be established in China and India. It's got to be in the interest of China, therefore, with so many dollars that they're holding to participate in QE3. It's in China's benefit not to have the uh, euro go into a total crisis situation. It's in China's benefit to contribute to that as much as, as possible. It would be in China's benefit to offload dollars by whatever means, but as it seems now, China is in the market for euros while the Fed uh, supplies the, uh, the dollars to, to prevent a liquidity crisis. Where does the yuan fit within all of this? Most likely a reserve currency by default. Nobody should want to be a reserve currency because it carries with it as much of a deficit in what you're doing as it does in credits in terms of your corporate and internal strength. I would suggest reserve currency by default. You were very optimistic the last time we spoke about general equities and gold stocks, at least uh, with the general equities in the, in the short term, and by that I mean a year or two out. Uh, general equities, uh, there's, a, there's an, an axiom, uh, and it's, it has been correct forever and it's going to remain correct forever. The grease of the wheels of the equity markets is liquidity. So as you supply liquidity, the wheels turn faster and easier in a sense of higher prices, regardless of whatever is going on in the general economy. Since I don't believe that these uh, employment figures are, in fact, truly reflective of the employment situation, uh, I would say that, you know, it could be that uh, that just quite recently has been the positive uh, for equities. The underlying uh, stage, let's say, uh, foundation, if you will, that will prevent equities from imploding uh, in difficult business is the fact that QE3 does exist, as we're speaking, certainly exists on a global scale, as we've discussed uh, with the Fed action. So uh, I think the floor under these reactions is provided by, Q by QE, while probably this recent few days has been more a product of the employment figures than anything else. So the status quo wants to remain in power and is, is I'm going to say it, Jim Sinclair is not necessarily going to say it, uh, uh, the books might be cooked, might be, underline, 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 the books might be cooked in order to keep everything the way it is come November. Now, these 5 million people that are unemployed in the U.S., uh, are they going to vote or are they not going to vote? They're going to vote. I'm sure they're going to vote because that, that's, that's the way a citizen exercises, exercises whatever political power they have. If they didn't vote, they're accepting their situation, and that could only be because of uh, a depression. Uh, I think they will vote, and I think they'll vote against whoever's in, whoever is in office. So no matter how these numbers are, are cooked, baked, and uh, taken out to a, a cake sale, it doesn't necessarily change the possible reality in November. Well, you're basically asking an interesting question. If you could fudge the figures in 1930, would you have had a depression till 1940? Uh, I, I, my position is more that the, the, the changes that have been made in the means and by, by which the uh, figures are, are um, calculated, and a very good comment, uh, commenter on that, uh, commentary on that is uh, David Williams in Shadow Statistics. The way that they've, the way the changes have taken place to benefit more positive figures, is going to continue to be overrun at least to a point of neutral by reality. Uh, I don't think that uh, the figures are as much fudged 
as the means of calculating them have been set up to uh, clearly benefit the positive result rather than a negative result. I guess oh. that's a, that might be a, a definition of fudging. Oh, it's all in how it's reduced, isn't it? Yes. So I don't think that they, that they, that they could absolutely uh, just change the figures and, and put out anything they wanted to. I think more, I think that the negative uh, pressure on employment, meaning those that are unemployed, uh, is so significant. And business is doing nothing but bouncing along a bottom that it really hasn't shown any signs of, a, of an intact uptrend. The only reason car sales are so high is because if you lose your house, you can go buy a nice Cadillac Escalade for 500 bucks and live in it. It's the only place where subprime loans thrive today. So the business environment out there is not supportive of a significant uh, return to employment at the rate that would be required to establish uh, significant uh, recovery uh, for those that are looking for a job over the next year or five years. So at, at best, I think the, the, uh, the employment reports will be rather neutral and that this exuberance right now is more uh, a, an attempt at management of prospective economics. That is that if you can make markets ebullient, uh, you might might change uh, business decisions. Uh, I don't think there's enough enough steam out there to make that happen. So I would suggest that the coming reports are going to be a little less favorable than what we what we've just seen, and that uh, QE3 will be the basis to maintain general equity prices during the election year. So we don't see a lot of positive change that could happen within ten or eleven months to. Uh to ex to counter exploit the uh, unemployment situation that no. Uh, exists. No, no, I don't. I don't believe you can see that, but I do believe that every effort will be made through uh, the addition of liquidity uh, to prevent it from rolling over on the negative side. Changing the subject just a little bit, although it's related, uh, what can the American consumer do to protect uh, his or herself uh, against what's coming? Uh, should we just get rid of our credit cards right now and only buy what you, we can you, afford? You basically uh, hit, the, hit it on the nose. The average consumer can't go out and make investments that will benefit from, uh, from these difficulties. Uh, but the average, the average listener can certainly pay attention to their own situation. And if the problem we have, and it is so that the entire world is, is, uh, is drowning in debt, then whatever can be done to lighten the debt load of each, of each person should be done. In other words, you've got to bite the bullet. And you should consider yourself extraordinarily lucky if you're in a position where you can do that. Standard of living is changing, and the attempt to maintain prior standards is what causes bankruptcy. And if the condition is bankruptcy, then the listener should face it as it is and do the necessary, uh, because it's not going to get better. So it's, it's a willingness to accept a uh, different lifestyle that will keep you out of getting into more trouble. Trying to maintain a past lifestyle in, as, as a result of the, uh, our banks and financial institutions' destruction of our economic system uh, is impossible. Recognize it and, uh, and do the necessary. Well, what if you're addicted to uh, 
to borrowing on your credit cards, like somebody might be addicted to smoking or or, or drinking. It's something that you can't stop. Well, you got to go to like any other bad habit. You got to go to the bottom before you can change. You got to admit you have a problem before you before the, before anything can be done. So enjoy buying your new TV, get a couple of new cars, see if you can get a house or two, and wait for the explosion. You know, it's been my philosophy for a long time that instead of buying these TVs and gadgets, and, you know, I'm, gu I'm as guilty of it as anybody, uh, divert some of that into uh, precious metals. Well, that, that does make great sense. But for the average guy, how about diverting it into, into, into bringing that debt down or consolidating the debt and stopping it right here? Or if you are bankrupt, go bankrupt. The uh, ability for listeners to go out again in a general sense and you know invest in gold or gold, gold mining companies or, or or the type of items that will benefit uh, from this unfortunate situation, they just simply uh, don't have the ability. What they've got to do is say, "What can I do?" and then define it and do it. I mean, basically, if if we're talking to people who are alcoholics where debt is concerned. And they, ha and they think they have a problem, they can't get even get into step number one for recovery. Well, essentially, if, if you're not in, in the markets right now, you don't know anything about precious metals or... Right. Well, uh, then why, even then yourself, yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, I look everywhere to see where expenses can be cut. Um, you know, I, 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 you ask yourself, how many suits do you need and isn't one car enough? Uh, you look at your own lifestyle and recognize that uh, that things are changing, and you got to change with it. Uh, changing politicians is not does not undo the damage that's done. And during an election year, there isn't there isn't a politician out there that's going to take any firm stand in any manner to be able to uh, overcome the problems and the opportunity to change what we have now has passed us. The damage done re, uh, gives us a situation where there is no practical solution. If what is conservative and right was to be done, uh, you could probably hear the economic explosion on Mars. Uh, you can't do the right thing politically at this point in time without creating as much harm as the problem itself. So whether your financial straits are good or they're poor, you're recommending that everyone basically consolidate. Absolutely. Face the, you know, bite the bullet. Look around you. See what's there. Don't, don't, don't uh, listen to the great employment figures, which will give you the hope that tomorrow you, uh, things will get better. Uh, that might, it might make you go out and say, yeah, I think I will buy that uh, foreclosed home and speculate. Or that just says, go out and get, me, get yourself a new suit or whatever. Uh, consolidate absolutely this is what must be done and do what with those with that con those consolidated funds that you might have just enjoy you know there's there's a life out there there are people there's family there's a, there's a super bowl game whatever it is that you enjoy that doesn't cost a lot of money uh you know just uh, be under less tension live life 
You don't have to live life by living things. You know, it's amazing how many people, well, at least I hear of this, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of it, but I'm sure you have in your travels, how many folks in these poor countries uh, truly are happy. I've seen happy people destroyed by wealth. Wealth's never going to buy you happiness. If you're not happy before, wealth isn't going to help you at all. You'll suffer from the syndrome of winning the lottery. If everyone around you has gone mad, maybe it's a good time to seek sanity. Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Have a fantastic rest of the week. Well, thank you very much, Alice, and I'd like to thank the listeners. I've been talking with Jim Sinclair, president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced staged gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's TanzanianRoyalty.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.